There we go. So again, welcome everybody. Uh, this is the Roxborough House Roundtables, and today is a special Black History Month uh, roundtable hosted by Law and Society, Honor Society, and I turn it over to Benjo Oniyama. Uh, okay, so just to start, I'm just going to have the members introduce themselves first. As Professor Lane said, I'm Ben Driel. Um, I'm the current president of the Law and Society Honor Society. And we can just go to Caitlin next. So my name is Caitlin Viola. I'm a third year Law and Society major and I am vice president of Law and Society Honor Society. Hi, I'm Meredith. I am a sophomore. I'm the clerk or the secretary on the Honor Society board. I'm Elaine McLaurin. I am a senior Law and Society major and I am the uh, treasurer of the Honor Society. Okay, um, I don't know if anyone cares, but my last name is Oniyama and I'm a senior. Since they all said, I just feel like I should say it too. Uh, so today we're going to have a Black History Month roundtable. We, full disclosure, we tend to be a very informal organization in terms of how we run things. And we felt that that would be the best here too, to make everyone as comfortable as possible. So there's no exact person that needs to be speaking anytime. If you feel you want to just listen in, that's fine. If you want to jump in at any time, that's also okay anything you would like to add as long as it's done so in a respectable way that doesn't just you know trash all over other people's opinions and what they have to say we are fine with that and participate as much or as little as you would feel like so the discussion that we have planned for today revolve around topics of AAVE, African Vernacular English, the Black Scent, Black Respectability Politics, and the last one that we had, which I always forget one of them, ah, code switching. So we thought those would be interesting topics because especially for me as a black young person entering the career field or just in my 20s in general, 30s, 40s, we feel like those things are something are things that really impact us right now. We're always conscious of ourselves as black youth as, as to how we present ourselves to the rest of the world and how the rest of the world sees us. So we thought those would be very appropriate topics to discuss. Uh, so um, I guess what we'd like to start with, we, when we were planning this, we thought we just asked people if they're even familiar with any of these terms, any of the four. And I'm going to actually put them in the chat in case people forget. But just jump in if you have any familiarity with these terms at all. Also, don't feel bad if you aren't familiar with any of these terms because even some of the board members did some research on them because not all of them are the most familiar to everyone. So feel free to ask any questions or ask for clarity. I have very little experience with um, the uh, AA, what was it? Uh, AAV. Shows you how no familiarity I have at all. So what is that? Can you tell me? And how, how does that all work? Okay, so great. Seems like we should start with a basic rundown of definitions. So AVE, African American Vernacular English, um, it's had different names throughout its history. There's Black English, like saying that it's a dialect or subset of standard English. Um, there's also Ebonics 
that was a name that was commonly thrown around. I think it's less commonly used now, but um, I have heard that in the past. So it's basically a subset of English and it's exactly like what it sounds like. It has its own grammatical structure and it has its own words. Commonly people think about it as like slang words, um, that come from the Black community, or it's actually going around a lot on social media. People think it's like internet slang, uh, things that people see online. So if you looked at our poster, common words are like, yas, <laughs> like people use those a lot. Um, there's also just like actual language structures. So we were talking about this in a group, instead of saying like, where are you going? You might say like, like, where's she going? Like you emit certain um common words in a phrase that would make it a standard full English sentence. So you've probably heard AVE a lot, but you just haven't recognized that it's AVE. That's what the general consensus that we came to in our meeting when we were discussing this. And then the black scent. Um, so the black accent, it's not a specific thing because obviously it's dehumanizing and very stereotypical to say that all black people sound the same, but it is the typical like, I don't know, ghetto ratchet black accent that is stereotypically associated with black people. Um, I'm not gonna do that right now, <laughs> but I feel like everyone can think about like when people imitate a black person, the first accent that you would think of, that's what's considered the black accent. Um, code switching is depending on the scenario, you feel that as a black person, you might have to talk a certain way to fit in. And code switching is, sort of basically like if you were to speak two different languages, you would obviously speak that language around people who understand you. It's kind of the same way when it comes to code switching among different communities. If I'm a black person, I might feel comfortable speaking a certain way to other people in the black community. Maybe I will speak a certain way depending on if I am at my work with my employers or other employees, especially if they're not predominantly black. Um, it could be the same for many other races, I'm sure, but obviously I only have experience as a black woman. And then black respectability politics is just feeling that depending on your race, you just have to act a certain way depending on your environment to be perceived as accepted or professional, likable, whatever the case may be. Um, anyone else in the honor society would like to add something to those definitions since I ran them down pretty quickly? Yeah, I just wanted to say that code switching also like extends like beyond like just the conversation of like the black community. So like pretty much I would I would say that most people code switch to some extent. It's kind of like a matter of like how you speak to like different individuals. Like for example, the way I would speak to like maybe Professor Lane is different than I would speak to like Bendriel, for example. So um yeah, so it goes like beyond, it goes like pretty much into like a lot of categories of the social realm, I would say. Did that help Professor yeah. Wayne and for anyone yeah. else who was unfamiliar with these terms? Very much. Okay. Can I say anyone something Anyone else have any questions? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> hey y'all, I'm Jordan. I graduated last year, but I, I saw this on Instagram. I just thought this would be an interesting conversation. Uh, can y'all hear me? Yep. Yeah, sorry, I'm outside shoving this now. Um, yeah, I, I just wanted to add a little bit of what I guess I learned based on it. Like the idea of African-American vernacular English, what used to be called uh, Ebonics, but is uh, it's all the same thing. I, 
I wasn't sure if it was actually true, but I think I read somewhere. Um, it kind of stems from, um, it stems from slavery, like most things do, but it stems from, you know, Black people having to unlearn and relearn a new language on the fly without being taught the specifics of it. And so that idea of, you know, speaking in a sentence and uh, omitting certain things. And this happens with, this happens with other languages, whatever, but it, specifically when you have to learn a new language, if you notice, like, you can notice this a lot with people who are of Spanish descent, people who, you know, have a Middle Eastern accent or whatever, when they speak English, they naturally omit certain things because in their, in their native tongue, they don't have to say that, you know, so that carries over for generations, you know, um, and saying, like, uh, somebody gave the example, like, instead of saying, uh, what are we going to go, what are we going to do? You say, all right, what are we finna do? You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's stuff like that, that, that um, having to learn and kind of mixing the languages that you naturally know, and then also having to learn broken English, really. So that kind of stems from that. And um, I agree with, I think it was Caitlin who said, um, code switching, everybody does it. Yes, um, I agree with that. Everybody definitely code switches because I mean, you cannot act the same around everybody. But you know, the distinction, I guess, the line we're trying to draw here is like the depths that you have to go through depending on who you are. You know what I mean? Um, code switching might not be, uh, it might be changing certain things you say or not saying certain things um, around a colleague that you would say around a friend. But in terms of, you know, my experience as a black man and some people's experience as black people or, or people of a different color is having to change not just what you say, but how you appear, how you come across, having to change your tone, you know what I mean? All that kind of stuff. Like it, it takes it a level deeper. It's almost like you almost have to speak an entirely different form of English. You know what I mean? Instead of just not making certain comments, it's like completely changing how you speak and going from saying, all right, I'm, I'm finna go to the store and hey, um, I'm gonna run to the store real quick. Do you want, some? you know what I mean? It's, it's kind of like that, like there's different levels to it. Sorry, that was kind of long. No, that was a really good distinction. That's like really important. Yeah. And Jordan also made a really good point when it comes to slavery. It's not like when the slaves were brought over, people are sitting down to give them English lessons. Like these people did not come from West Africa speaking English. I mean, obviously now lots of countries in Africa speak English. I'm from Africa. I spoke English as my first language, obviously a dialect of English, but I still spoke English. Like it wasn't such a change when I came to America. I had to learn standard English because I spoke a different dialect, but the difference was like, I had ESOL classes. No one was out here giving the slaves ESOL classes. For example, out here, example of AVE, because that would not be something I would typically say if I was writing an email to Professor Lane. Like Professor Lane, was anyone out here giving slaves English lessons? I wouldn't say that, I would say Professor Lane, are you aware if slaves are taught standard English when they were enslaved? There's just a difference that came out naturally, but that's, I think part of Jordan's point, like no one actually sat down to teach slaves 
what they considered to be the proper way to do things. So they had to learn things on their own. And then down the line, they were also villainized for trying to do things on the fly when they really had no other choice. They were just trying to assimilate the best they could to survive, but then it ended up being still wrong because they didn't exactly know where the line between right and wrong was. And can I ask Jordan a question? Cause he raised a really good issue. Um, Jordan, when you're code switching, does it ever come a point where you feel you're either betraying who you are or betraying you know, your true nature? And how, if that's true, how does that make you feel? Well, I have, a, I have uh, a, I guess a more unique experience because for me, um, I come and a lot of people, I, I know a couple of people in this chat as well. Um, I don't tend to speak with that much um, Ebonics or that much. So like all my life, I've been told that I speak quote unquote white because I've always speak, I've always spoken proper and that's how my parents were. That's how my grandparents were. So, you know, I've always been able to speak and then, you know, they, they assume or they, they make it imply that I'm not black enough because I don't speak the way that they would assume that a black person does. So like when I, the only code switching I really go through would be almost appearance sometimes. And, you know, I'm kind of going through this thing where I'm fighting. See, people know me. So I wear a do-rag. So um, it's for my hair. But a lot of people attribute that kind of stuff to, um, they, they attribute that to like criminality. They see criminals, they see prison people wearing do-rags and they think that that people who are uninitiated to it, they don't understand what it means. So I often find that when I'm in certain spaces, people give me different looks. People give me, uh, people, I've, I've walked into restaurants and had every eye stare at me at some point and I felt it and I could see them like turn their heads, saw people like look in the aisle to look at me and then come back or whatever. So like in spaces like that, I feel almost pressured to adjust. I feel the pressure to adjust to what they would think was comfortable, but I feel a pride in not only what I'm doing for my hair because I know it has nothing to do with criminality, but it's also a part of my culture. So I go out of my way to try and expose people to what they don't know. And if they have a question, or if they have something about it, I invite them to come and talk to me about it. But because I have such a pride in being a black man and being a part of this culture, I want to stand out and be a product of that. So I rarely have to change what I am or you know what I represent, but I, I try to challenge people to adjust to what somebody else does rather than getting that person to change to make them comfortable. Does that make does that answer the question? I'm not sure. Oh yeah. Thank you so much. No problem. Um, to follow up on that, I can give my own personal experiences. Um, I agree with what Jordan's saying. I also come from a background, well, my father's adopted by white people, so my, half my family is white, and then the other half is, of course, Black. So when I am moving into um, an environment where I'm around mostly white people, I do find myself having to be more particular on what I say, not even just how I say it, but like the words I'm using, I find that I, I need to start using more academic language just for no reason too. Like it's just a regular conversation um, when I'm around mainly white people. And then I expect certain conversations to come up. So I expect 
that they're going to ask me about school or things like that. So I have to prepare what I'm saying in my head just to make it sound like I know what I'm talking about. So yeah. And then when I'm with my friends, it's, I have way less anxiety. I, I just speak how I normally speak. So I guess I, to what you were saying, Professor Lane, about um, our individuality and our comfortability with ourselves, I do get more restricted and feel less of myself. Hmm. I don't wanna put it like that. I do kind of feel anxiety about myself when I'm around mainly white people than I would with my friends. If I can, can add I, to that. Oh, oh, sorry. No, you go first. <laughs> um, it's also, um, I think Vendriel said, um, you also referenced tone. Um, and I think there's a lot of, a lot of times when you're around, well, me particularly, when you're around white people, I also get that sort of anxiety or maybe it's just a second awareness of, I wanna make sure the way that I'm saying my words isn't, um, doesn't make people uncomfortable. Um, especially because I think a lot of times um, in my experience, a lot of white people misconstrued my words as a black person and probably other people's um, in a way that's aggressive or um, not welcoming. And it kind of takes away from what we actually say. So I wanted to add what, what you were talking about, about anxiety. And um, it's sort of like a double awareness you kind of get. Um, you just, you're very, um, you're hyper aware of who you're around and how you, what may happen in a situation. Yeah, to add, oh, I'm sorry, Caitlin, did you wanna go? No, it's okay. I was just gonna ask a really quick question, but um, I think Candace sort of answered it, but I was gonna ask Anya, is that how you pronounce it? I don't wanna mispronounce it. Yeah, thank you for pronouncing it correctly. Okay, cool. Um, I was just gonna ask like, do you guys feel like you've had direct experiences like in the past that like led you to code switch in that way or like feel that level of anxiety? Or do you think it's just like the general like stigmatization of like black language? And anyone can jump in, obviously. I think, I think in situations where especially nowadays, I can only talk for people, black people our age. I think it happens a lot in school just because I went to um, predominantly white schools. So I think I was even from the beginning, it's really hard to get my words together, sorry. Um, I think from an early age, I knew when um, people were listening to me talk, like I, I knew, when they were paying attention. Um, so I, I would say, yes, I've had direct, um, I guess, situations where it's happened to me. Um, and over time, since it's happened, not all of the time I'm talking to white people, but it, it's happened a number of times. It's sort of, it's just, it, it, it actually becomes automatic and I don't even think about it. Um, like I process it and it's like, it is what it is. So, um, and that's what I don't like. Um, I hate that I have to not be my my true self. Or I, I hate that I have to um, always watch what I say around people. Um, but yeah. To go off of that, I think it is a conscious, conscious, unconscious decision to do it. 
And also at the same time, I think for a lot of minorities growing up, it's just what you hear. Like your parents may talk to you a certain way, but then as soon as they get on the phone, it's, oh, their voice switches. And so you hear that and you're like, oh, I have to do the same thing as well. And so it's something that you are aware of and that you know that you have to do, but it's also ingrained at the same time. Can I Meredith, you have something? Oh, I'm sorry. Meredith, did you want to go to before? I think Talia oh, I'll go after Talia. Okay, go ahead then. <laughs> okay, I'm oh, sorry. Um, yeah, I just wanted to follow up. You're all um, good. <laughs> with what Aaliyah said and Candice. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of something that I know for me, I, I grew up in Philly. So like in a more urban area where everyone kind of talked pretty much the same no matter what your color is or anything like that, we kind of all just spoke the same way. Um, but I did realize like if my mom was talking to like a bill collector or something like that, or just anywhere where she was interacting with a white person, she would kind of change some of her words and things like that. And I know for a while, like, um, and I also went to an African centered school um, up until eighth grade. So I was surrounded by, other black kids um, until I got to high school, but I kind of like felt like I wouldn't be able to communicate with white people. So I kind of had, I'll be honest, like not a fear, but just like an anxiety and just kind of not talk to them just because I didn't think that they would understand what I was saying. Um, and then when I got to high school, I kind of just felt like if you're not changing the way you talk for me, why should I do it for you? So that's kind of how I go about things. I understand the difference between speaking in a professional manner and just, I, I don't know, maybe that is code switching, I guess, if you have to change speaking and slang to speaking professionally. Um, but in my mind, I kind of made it up that I don't want to use code switching. So I personally don't. Um, I wanted to um, add to what Jordan was kind of saying and how code switching is doesn't always have to just be about speaking like we talked about tone but like what you're wearing like just general general presentation and um it's just like you have to think how are people going to perceive me like and that's how you then go to make decisions about how you're wearing your hair or what clothes you're wearing which is something yes like I mean I'm not really the idea of professionalism, I really don't, I really disagree with. And I think it's like, it's like elitist in a lot of ways. Um, so I, but I know like everybody has to try to look professional, but it's just like an extra step if you are a minority because you're already seen as unprofessional. So then you want to like overcompensate. Um, yeah. I want to add to that, Meredith, um, because, and I, and I think I, this is also a learning experience for me as is other Black people. I think when we think of professionalism, I just automatically think of something white and someone white, and I just think of whiteness. And it's, again, it's something that I have to unlearn because, you know, I, like I said, like Aaliyah said also, it's ingrained. We're, we're always thinking about it, but it's something automatic and it's ingrained. Um, but I think it's important that we as Black people 
try our hardest to stem away from something that's so white and I guess that's so like damaging to us like I don't want to have to go to a job every I don't want to have to go to a job every day and feel like I can't be my true self because that that'll interfere with my work it'll interfere with the relationships I make with people at my job and it's also just not a, a happy life to live so it's it's a learning process, I think. I mean, it's 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 not our fault. It's what we were taught. It's what we saw. It's what our parents saw, and so forth and so on. But it's something that we always have to unlearn. So, uh, very good discussion already. Um, while listening to everyone talk, I was kind of taking notes on some things that stuck out to me. The first thing is how we keep using words like proper and professional to automatically mean that we're talking about something associated with like whiteness versus slang um, that we're associating with blackness. And I just wanna say like, that is exactly the type of thing we're talking about. We're not out here saying like black speech versus white speech. We're literally just saying proper and everyone automatically knows what we're talking about just because it's so ingrained in society that certain things associated with black populations are less professional. But then the other thing I wanna say, we keep mentioning white a lot, which isn't necessarily wrong, but there's also an aspect of internalized racism within the actual black community, because I believe Jordan was the one that mentioned this, he'd meet black people and he wouldn't be black enough for their expectations. Black people call other black people ratchet. Black people call other black people ghetto. Black people seeing other black people on the street having fun and just because they're loud and dancing or whatever and enjoying themselves, all of a sudden they're ghetto. They're bringing down the whole ambiance of the restaurant. Like there were so many things like that I saw going around on Twitter, like black people getting kicked out of restaurants for talking loudly for dancing because the restaurant was trying to have, what was the word they're looking for? Like an elegant, ambiance and it was just the black people there doing their thing was kind of bringing it down so but the restaurants were owned by other black people so I just want to bring it up that it's not necessarily this round table is not meant to accuse white people of demonizing things associated traditionally black people because we're at this at the point now where there's also internalized anti-blackness within the black community so it's I think Candace was the one that was saying, like, we have to go through actual efforts to unlearn these bad habits, even as Black people. Because I know, like, when I first came to America, I took ESOL classes, not because I didn't speak English, because I didn't speak the English that was considered acceptable. So I consciously have to remind myself that, like, my parents, for example, they'll say box juice when they mean to say juice box. But there's nothing wrong with what they're saying. I know exactly what they mean. So I also have to make conscious efforts to not correct the ways other Black people are acting to make them fit in with standards that are not normal to them or not normal, but that are not natural to them. So I just want to bring that up. This isn't necessarily something like, oh, white people are to blame for this, because at this point, Black people also go have a huge hand in like propagating these stigmas against our own community. Can I say... Yeah, I'll say a quick thing on that. Yeah, go um, ahead. The, what you just said was one of the re, one of the main reasons why I joined this chat. I had a pretty unique experience this past like fall. Um, I worked at a hotel desk, and so I saw people from all across the country because we were we were a hotel that mainly housed truckers. So um, so I got people from all across the country 
coming in and there's this one black man that stopped in. I checked him in. I always, you know, be friendly, all that kind of stuff. And before he left, he said, you, can I tell you something? I said, it's, it's very, it's, it does my heart good hearing another black man speak with such proper English like you do, like myself. He spoke like I did. And he was like, it's, it, it warms my heart to see another black man speak like this. You know, you don't often see that, you know, and you don't speak what, like I have two sons and one of them speaks like the ghetto blacks. And I try to get him to stop doing that, you know, and it shook me. And I, and I, and I ended up having like a, like a 40 minute conversation with this dude, which was very helpful, but he kept saying, and he kept trying to draw this distinction between proper blacks and ghetto blacks that were criminals that were whatever. And I said, I said, let me ask you a question, sir. I know people, you say your son speaks like the ghetto, like the, the gangsters and all this kind of stuff. He speaks with a little bit of slang. I said, I know a guy who comes in here every other week who's from Oklahoma. And he is a white man, an older white man, but this man speaks some of the most broken English I've ever heard in my life. Like you, it takes you a second to understand what he's saying just because that's the way people speak where he's from. That's how he grew up. I say, would you ever assume that that man is a criminal? I, I guarantee that your son speaks almost the exact same way he does. Fast, uh, not fully complete, proper English, obviously. I think, would you assume that that person is a troublemaker? I said, is your son actually in the streets uh, selling drugs, doing all this stuff? He said, no. He's got himself a job. He's on the right track. I said, so what is your problem with his speech? And he was like, he doesn't want people to perceive him that way. And I said, sir, um, whose problem is it? If he's not the description that you think you, that you think somebody is based on how they speak, if you assume that just because they speak a way that they're devalued as a person or they fit a certain mold, is that a person with the person? Is that a problem with the person speaking, or is that the problem with the in interpretations of what that speech means to these people? I said, uh, these people who are judging him are going to judge him no matter what. We don't tell people who we don't tell people from the South who speak broken English to speak more proper. We don't correct them. We say that's just their Southern accent. That's how they speak. But it seems like we always seem to be policing black speech, or we we police, you know, people who speak Spanish. And you know, you always hear like, "Speak English." You're in it. You're in America. We speak American. You know what I mean? Like that kind of stuff. You often hear that whenever it comes to black speech. So I said, if we don't if we don't treat broken English from America as wrong, then why do we do it with black speech? I would rather us be in a world and work towards to get work towards a society where instead of trying to get people to accustom to get accustomed to you and be comfortable for you to digest, we go out of our way to learn to adapt to how people are. If they come from you know a very urban area and they have some slang, then you work to understand what they're saying. Like you said with your mother or your uh, father, they say box juice instead of telling them juice box. You knew what they were trying to say. 
it just took for somebody who's not used to it it might take a second but at the end of the day you know what they're trying to say if we get more like that as a society we won't have this problem if we look to try and understand the differences between us and adapt to them rather than trying to get people to adapt to a select few then we'll get somewhere you know and, and like i said that that's that unique experience that I had with another black person comes that internalized racism that we were talking about. It's the code switching. It's the, um, you know, it's the black scent and all that kind of stuff infused into one. And that was one of the main reasons why I wanted to talk to them. Uh, to go off of Jordan's point and also to Leah's point earlier, um, I think that those are such important points because, for example, like if you look at the way that people generally view like white accents, like like people find British or like Australian accents to be so charming and so sophisticated when in reality, it's literally just another accent, the same, the same way as, as a black accent. And then not only that, but like the point that Talia made about like feeling uncomfortable, like speaking around white people because of like the way that they might perceive them or like, uh, how like valid they might find what they're saying according to their speech is like such a dangerous thing like because how can races learn from one another and like interact with one another if there's like these social barriers and instances where people don't even feel comfortable speaking around others it's like and it shouldn't be like the expectation of the black race to respond to the way that others choose to perceive them so that was those are really good points. Can I, can I ask, can I ask uh, folks, because you really have been so open, um, when you have to do this, um, when you talk about the anxiety that you have, do you feel lesser um, as a person? Does it affect your um, view of yourself and your self-worth? Can I? Um... I can kind of go back to um to answer that, like being on campus. <clears throat> I know I would walk into like camp bar and I would just see how like <clears throat> there would be like dots of like black people just like coming in and out. And like it'd be rare that you see them interacting with all the other white people in camp bar. Like it just be very rare. Like and I felt like we all kind of had a common feeling of, if I go over to the table and talk to these white people, they probably gonna look at me like, what are you talking about? Like, so I think we all kind of, and even when it comes to being in class, like I feel like education, I think Candace mentioned it earlier, definitely kind of instills the feeling that the way that I say things, um, <clears throat> even when we have to present, we didn't have to present a project or anything like that. It's just, we always feel like, okay, I have to change who I am. I have to copy what they said and how they say it just so that I can be understood. And it's a constant feeling, like especially being on campus because you're just surrounded by other white faculty and students. And it just kind of like, you kind of have to program yourself to either adapt and talk that way and act that way or to just not say anything at all, just because of the environment and the response that you kind of get from trying to just speak the way that you do, naturally. I, I was just typing Benny, but as a faculty member, 
what can faculty do um, in the classrooms to make people of color or people who have different ways of presenting themselves more comfortable so they can feel um, that they could express their true nature in class and not have that anxiety? Oh, perfect segue into respectability politics. Uh, so again, the general understanding of respectability politics is having to, I guess, as everyone was saying, not just change the way you speak, but your entire demeanor and the way you present yourself, depending on the situation. And I have found that college classrooms, especially, no offense to Jefferson, but Jefferson's a pretty white campus. And I have frequently been the only black person in the classroom and or at least one of the few black people or minorities in general. And so it can be a pretty interesting experience. Um, and that is, even though it's not necessarily like a professional career setting, that would be an example of a situation where a black person or minority in general might feel like they have to change to feel respected in that environment. As far as what Jefferson specifically can do, I mean, they can let in more black people, but <laughs> that like, that's easy, that's easier said than done, though. I am not on the admissions board. I don't know how they let people into school. I don't know how that's decided, but that's pretty much the easiest way. More representation would naturally mean that Black people would not feel such a stark difference in the worlds that they're interacting with. If I just walked around campus and I saw more Black people, it would mean a lot to me, honestly. Not saying that like I would expect to see Black people who talk or speak a certain way, but just seeing more people who look like me because at the end of the day, they largely have some of the same experiences with me. Because even if a Black person like code switches to the extreme that we think about versus a Black person who, as Jordan said, he described himself as a Black person who speaks proper, the fact of the matter is when people see those two Black people, they still see the same image first before they even open their mouth. So just seeing more Black people on campus who I know share the same experience of being perceived a certain way before I even have a chance to say anything or justify anything about myself, that would be a huge stepping ground for Jefferson. But I'm assuming you mean things that you can actually physically control as a professor, right? Mm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Meredith, go ahead. Um, I think that, of course, it's a race issue, but also it's like, just like an academia and like upper, like, yes, more black people in the classroom would be great, but I don't know how much that would change. Like, like I'm still presenting to the professor and because even people ac accuse the Obamas of really engaging in this respectability, like narrative, like you have to be educated, like you have to follow this path to be able to be seen as valuable kind of and just the just like professionalism and like there could still be black people, even black professors who could still want you to like seem a certain way, present yourself in a certain way. Um, just that's more like academic or like using different words like that are bigger, honestly, um, that you can understand with or without them. So I guess less, focus on that and like more focus on 
the content and if you can understand like what's happening then yeah so i'm just i'm gonna one second candace and then i'll let you speak for a second but um i think to go in the opposite way some things are just i don't know if it's that easy um like some professors they'll try to make you feel comfortable and like uh try to make everyone speak but it also is on your classmates like a couple of months ago i was speaking with a lawyer because i'm obviously like going to law school and i wanted to know her experiences as a black woman in law school and one she told me of an experience where they were having a discussion in class and the question was well how can we how do we get rid of the stigma of black people or black men as like you know these savages or like whatever you want to say and there was a classmate of hers that said well that's what they are like they're just savages they do things like that and so as you can as your all reaction that I had the same reaction and so it's not only the professors it's also the people around you and she told me in that moment she was like I will never work with you ever in life and it's just something that you just have to accept like some people are just not going to change yeah I was going to say there's really nothing you can do I mean if if someone's gonna um, focus on the way you talk in a negative way, um, then they're just gonna do that. You can't make, you can't, no matter how much you want someone to change, you can't make them change. Um, we don't do that with white people. I mean, it, it's interesting because like the way white people talk to us, they just talk to us. They don't have any sort of thought about it and we don't have any sort of thought about it. It's just the way they talk. We And it, we expect them to talk a certain way and there's no, there's no right or wrong way for a white person to talk. Uh, well, I mean, the way it is now, they, they just talk and it's okay. So, I mean, for you, Lane, I, I guess it, I don't know if it counts. I've never felt like, I've never felt um, that I couldn't speak a certain way in your class. Um, I mean, keep doing what you're doing. There's nothing, there's no, I mean, unless, if you're actively trying to um, not have a stereotype of someone, that's only something that you can do. Um, but I've never felt that way in your class. That Me either. <laughs> well, I, I can tell you as a professor, the problem I have, and luckily law and society is pretty diverse, which is, I'm so happy to say. So we don't have that problem in our classes that Benjamin has in the other classes. But say we're talking about something that has to do with race. And uh, I would very much like to hear yours and Bendriel's opinion, Aliyah's opinion, Candace's opinion, because I want to hear what you have to say, not because you're black or a woman, because you're good students. But then I will say to myself, as I'm, should I not call on Candace? Because she'll think that I'm calling on her because she's black, not because she's Candace. But if I don't call on Candace, I'm not going to get Candace's point of view. So it becomes a uh, for me, it always becomes like this head game, like who I should call on in my classes, being afraid that um, I'm calling on because they think that they represent all Black people and they have to talk on behalf of all Black people in the classroom. So um, I want to, if you, I want you to know that some professors have that going through their heads, but have you been experienced where maybe you think you have been called on because you're the Black person to speak on behalf of? all black issues, you know, um, so I throw it at you that way. 
Um, I've had similar experiences to that, not necessarily being called on because I'm the spokesperson for all black people, but definitely being put on the spot for noticeable differences. So for example, I have fiery red hair and <laughs> one morning I had it up in ponytail and the professor thought it was a hat. And she called out to the whole class like, oh, I love your pretty red hat. And it was, it was uncomfortable of course, because now I have to explain to her, it's not a hat, it's my hair. And then I have to, you know, forgive her for putting me on the spot like that. But I think when it comes to being, I think professors try to be relatable sometimes to black people, but then it, it makes us even more uncomfortable because it's like, we don't vibe like that. You know what I mean? So to answer your question previously though, I think it'll be beneficial if it's just more subtle hints to our, our uniqueness, I guess. So like playing, say you're listening to a TED talk, maybe play a, a black woman or find minorities, find ways to incorporate minorities into your curriculum more often. So that way you don't have to put people on the spot. It's just already there. The representation is already there for us to see. So us and the whole entire class can get com more comfortable seeing um, visual representation of black people or just any minority at that. Thank you. Um, can I also say something? Um, I also feel like um, as a professor, sorry, my niece is crying. <laughs> um, I also feel like um, as a professor or just professors in general could take more initiative to kind of step out of your space and step into our spaces. Um, we do have a black student union. There are some members that are in here. Um, and most of the people in here have been to some of our meetings. Um, we have Dean Henry, um, he comes to our meetings um, just to kind of talk to us and just understand our experience. And he's a white man, um, older white man, and he's not of the same experience, but just him stepping into our space sometimes to listen, um, it just makes you feel more, for me personally, it just makes me feel more comfortable to just be able to be seen as a person and felt as a person. Um, I feel like students and staff could do more of that because we, as Black students, anytime that we're in a virtual class or in a class in person or on campus, we're in your space, you know, majority of the time trying to adapt and understand you. But it's rare that we have it the other way around where, you know, a white person comes into a Black student union meeting just to sit there and just listen to us and talk to us and understand us, or even a white teacher inviting us to a class to talk to the students about our experience. And I feel like it's educational. I feel like it is appropriate. So, you know, why doesn't it happen? Like we have to sit and listen to white American history all day. Why can't we come into a class and talk about our experience or our history or anything like that? So that's just something I feel like those initiatives can be taken and should be taken. Um, some, I don't remember who exactly was, but someone, I guess all of you were basically saying, give, that's our phone, I ignore that, but give, um, like, I guess just general more representation to make Black people feel more comfortable. To go off of what you were saying, Professor Lane, you were saying that in your head, you always have this battle of whether or not you should call this person because you don't want to make them feel like they're a representative of the entire 
black race. Personally, if anyone knows me, I don't mind speaking <laughs> my mind within reason, of course. I would never want to go out of my way to offend people. But like if someone asked me a question about my experience being black or like my experience being African coming to a like an an American world, that doesn't make sense to America. Like I will always speak, but at the same time, I think something that professors can definitely take note of besides just providing the platform for black people or other minorities to speak also supporting them after they've spoken because even though i feel comfortable speaking it's draining when i speak and then people are like okay but or how about or like i've heard this or i've seen this or you know other black people it's like then what's the point of asking <laughs> like if you're gonna give me the spotlight and the stage to speak i want to feel comfortable knowing that people aren't just list like listening to me but actually trying to understand me and i'm not saying you have to agree with everything i'm saying or think that my word is law for every black person but at the same time i think part of the reason why i can't feel uncomfortable for black people to speak even if you're someone like me who doesn't mind voicing their opinion sometimes i just don't think it's worth it if people are just going to speak over me anyway or just ignore what i'm saying regardless so I think that's something that Black people can do. And I know personally in your class, Professor Lane, I am very comfortable speaking my opinion. It's just sometimes I don't, or sometimes I'll just say something that I know the majority will agree with, even if I don't agree with it, because I don't have the energy to like justify myself or defend what I just said anyway. So it's not worth it for me. So I think that's something that professors can take note of. Giving Black people or minorities the opportunity to speak is one thing, but making sure that people are actually listening to what they're saying and accepting and understanding it is a different thing as well. Um, I just wanted to like acknowledge the chat, keep track of like what people are saying there. Um, so Janine, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, said that she thinks that uncomfortable conversations need to continue and ruffle feathers and that discomfort can lead to growth, which is a really good point. And then what Meredith said, which I've actually like seen at Jefferson, which is I'm sure extremely uncomfortable and like unfair, um, like professors commenting on black people's hair and turning it into an awkward conversation. Honestly, maybe this is like a bold statement to make, but I just feel like professors don't really need to make much of a statement on anybody's appearances very much at all. Like, and it's definitely not like I feel appropriate to like make any sort of comment that like could even maybe make a student uncomfortable. Obviously I can't speak for the black community by any means, but just the fact that like, that's something that any student should have to worry about, like any black student should have to worry about in the classroom is like absolutely ridiculous to me because it's just like public embarrassment for no reason. Like, I don't know why that's even a thing. Um, Benjo, we're close to, um an hour. So I, this went incredibly fast. Um, thanks to you guys um, and the interest that you've kept. But if you could wrap it up, because we like to keep these about an hour. Um, okay, well, I think I've spoken enough. So basically, thank you all for coming. But I'm going to leave it to my board members to give final thoughts to give them a little more airtime. So we can start with Meredith. Uh, well, does anybody else have any like comments like that they want to say before we like, go? Oh, yeah, I just want to say real quickly, the BSU has a meeting tonight. We're going over um, 
financial literacy financial literacy in the black community tonight at 6 p.m. Just want to throw that throw that out there. 6 p.m. The Zoom link is on our BSU page. I I would like to say, and I hate to mansplain, but I feel as though black women um, have to deal with respectability politics more than anybody. And and when especially when it comes to tone policing, you know, I I often hear um, conversations about or or see situations where they have to monitor not only what they say but how they say it to be able to be taken serious or even have their opinions be heard in general. And they they always there's a there's a common um, perception of them as just this aggressive this attitude this this chip on their shoulder, when in reality, most of the time, even if they are upset, it's because there's been a, a history of them not being heard in what they say. And I'm not gonna act like I am completely, you know, uh, outside of this. I know that I try to work on and I try to look for this, if, if, but that's one thing. And then I would like to push back against somebody. One thing that somebody said is like, some people just won't change. I as in addition to fighting against professionalism, I've, I fight really hard against that. You know, I've seen, we, I've, you see stories of the most violent, most vitriolic racist changing and not most people are not vitriolic. It's that inherent, that, that unconscious bias that people have. But if you, if you address it and you can find a way to get them to see it, there's a better chance that they work towards that kind of stuff. And there's not much you can do as a professor to combat that stuff besides trying to see it when it happens and trying to point it out so that people learn from that lesson. You know, you can't, like you said, you can't just force somebody to change, but you can leave breadcrumbs for them to be able to follow down that path. And so if you find what they're saying, you find how that bias is coming out and you hear that in people, like I think it was Benjiel talking that said, um, uh, you know, her speaking or her giving her opinion on something and it's constantly fought against. Everybody seems to go against that. And you don't necessarily see that with a, when a lot of men speak, but you see that often when women and women of color speak in general, you know what I mean? So seeing that, seeing that unconscious, if it's that it comes off as if a woman talks, she doesn't know what she's talking about or she doesn't understand the situation like, like the rest of us do. And so if you see that, point it out. See that, you know, maybe pull a, a kid that seems to have a problem with whenever somebody talks, a specific person talks, pull that kid aside and be like, hey, I noticed that you seem to always have a problem with what she's saying. Do you understand why? And then point out, it seems like it comes off like you have a problem with her or when all the women speak. You seem to only comment when the women speak something like that. So if we if we call it out, and like somebody said in the comment, if we force people into those uncomfortable situations, that's when change happens. If we just let it go because we don't wanna ruffle feathers, if we just let it go because that's just how people are, then we'll never make any progress. And I, I rally so hard against this idea that this is just how people are. Some people are just bad or whatever. Yeah, some people won't make that journey, but I'd rather take the opportunity to try to get somebody to change rather than to just let this go. 
I just want to make a super quick point. Sorry about what Jordan said, because it brought something to mind. I totally agree with what he said about um, people being able to change because these are all like learned, like nobody was born with any of this. Like it's literally, they're all like environmentally like learned traits and like can be unlearned. So I do think that it's like extremely important to like hold people accountable and to work toward changing people. As, as set in their ways as you think they might be, there's always, always an opportunity to change. I think that's a great way to end the round table on that extremely optimistic note from Jordan and Kate. Uh, I wanna thank all of you for an amazing round table. I'm going to uh, make a, um, a link for this. I'll put it on our Facebook page, on the Spectre Center and Law and Society page. I'll be sending it to uh, the Law and Society Honor Society as well, so they can uh, distribute it, as well as send it to our diversity offices so they can distribute it as well. Um, thank you all for being so open and uh, really discussing a very important issue. Thanks again. Thank you.